Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Today's episode of the Campaign Confidential Podcast is presented by Huawei. Governments may come and go, but Huawei is here to stay. We are committed to connecting Europe during good times and bad, now and into the future. I sought this office to restore the soul of America, to rebuild the backbone of this nation, and to make America respected around the world again. You're listening to our special U.S. election series, Campaign Confidential. Wow. It's been a wild election, hasn't it? And it's ending in a wild way too, after we all spent five days refreshing our screens to learn about obscure counties and voting law quirks waiting for a result. I thought it was nearly over when network after network called Pennsylvania for president-elect Joe Biden on Saturday. CNN projects Biden wins Pennsylvania. The Fox News decision desk can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania and Nevada... In heavily Democratic New York, where I live, people literally poured into the streets to dance and drink before lunch. And then came the backlash. President Trump's legal team vows to bring a wave of new lawsuits in several states. They will all be in an attempt to to, uh, contest Joe Biden's win of the presidency. If you've been a listener to this podcast, you can't say you weren't warned about all of it. Back in episode nine, Politico's Zach Montalaro told us we would wait and wait for a result. The thing that people talk to me a lot is like, will we know, when will we know the winner? Is your take that we're probably waiting several days for a result? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I guess if we're talking to you fine folks in Europe, you're already going to go to bed without knowing the winner. So congratulations. But in America, that's unusual for us. Um, normally, by and large, Americans go to sleep on November 3rd. It may be a very late night, but you know who the president is. At worst, you know it November 4th. Um, there's the very real possibility, if not the likelihood, that we won't know that this year because of what I mentioned earlier. The concern this year that if everybody, if everyone handled this with a level head, no one would be super concerned about it. It's that right now the concern among voting rights groups, election administrators, congressional Democrats, you name it, everyone more or less except for Donald Trump himself is concerned that Trump might try to declare victory based off partial or inconclusive results. That's a real concern. My advice to everyone would be have patience, assume we're not going to know the winner immediately, and that's okay. It's not a sign of fraud. It's not a sign that something went wrong. It's just a sign it takes some time to count some votes. And he told us, too, that Trump would claim victory, even if it meant claiming the results were fraudulent. It's really that every part of this system, every part of a mail-in system, will be litigated by somebody at some point. Uh, right now, it's drop boxes. It'll be, uh, we have saw a lot of litigation over when ballots are actually due. It'll be litigation over signatures. This will be the most litigious American election probably of all time, even before we get to Election Day. And there's also that possibility that come November 3rd, 
following the election, there's more litigation as well. So this is 2000 on steroids in a way where we're going to yeah. probably see multiple Floridas if there's not a clear cut result on the election night. I had a Republican conservative lawyer tell me at one point that he thinks that there's a possibility of Bush v. Gore, that 2000 election case, in 14 different states. So, oof. Wow. Buckle up. <laughs> You've got a busy November ahead of you. Uh, I got a busy November, yeah. As it stands, Trump's campaign is now sowing distrust in America's electoral system. The lawsuits keep coming, though they've lost 10 out of 10 lawsuits so far. Sitting Republican senators have attacked their Republican colleagues, the very people who administered their own elections in Georgia. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is responding to a scathing indictment from Georgia senators following Republicans David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. In a joint statement, they call for his resignation. They accuse him of mismanagement and a lack of transparency without providing any evidence. Writing, this There's is been wild claims of vans full of fraudulent ballots even a press conference next to a porn store and a crematorium. That was supposed to be at the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia. But instead, Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was talking in front of Four Seasons Total Landscaping instead. The election had not yet been called when the president tweeted, lawyers press conference at Four Seasons, Philadelphia, 11 a.m. A few minutes later, he followed that up with a clarification, Four Seasons Landscaping. Two minutes after that, he deleted the first tweet and started over, quote, big press conference sitting in Philadelphia at Four Seasons, Total landscaping. Oh, that Four Seasons, of course. He means Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Okay, we didn't predict the Borat-worthy location, but we did predict the theme. I'm Ryan Heath, and on this final episode of our Campaign Confidential series, we'll revisit what we've discussed over the last three months and how it explains why we ended up here. And we'll look forward to the rest of the election. That's right, it's not over. Control of the Senate remains in the balance, and it's coming down to two second-round runoff votes in Georgia in January. That's a state where Joe Biden is leading Donald Trump by just 12,000 votes out of 5 million. So later in the podcast, you'll hear from Atlanta Journal-Constitution politics reporter Greg Bluestein about why Georgia has become such a contentious state and where the Senate races will be won or lost. In a state like Georgia that has been so reliably Republican, no Democrat has ever won a statewide runoff, like a statewide overtime match in Georgia history. But first, let's take you back to our very first episode, where we heard from Ben Wickler, Democratic Party state chair in Wisconsin, a state that went for Obama, then Trump, then Biden, and where a lot of the credit for that is going to Wickler's fundraising and mail voting operation. Uh, after the loss in 2016, we didn't just sort of go home and hibernate for four years. We started building presidential level operations in our state parties. So now when the Biden campaign has come, they're actually integrating with full scale campaign apparatuses that have been set up. With Wickler bet big on mail voting and it paid off. It was heart stopping for a while with Trump voters dominating Election Day before the Democrat totals crept up to secure the win, thanks to their mail vote dominance. Not only were we not going to knock on doors, which is traditionally our most powerful tactic, we also weren't even telling people to go vote in person. We, for the first time, we focused completely on asking people to vote absentee, to request ballots at, that they could fill out at home and send them in to vote by mail. So this was a big shift for us. Uh, it involved a very different approach to how we use data because suddenly we're looking at, did you request your ballot? Did you send in your ballot? Uh, has your ballot been received? 
And uh, it meant uh, training all of our activists, our local neighborhood teams, our county party units, all over the state. We held nightly webinars training all these people on how to do a very different style of organizing. But the great thing about But in the end, the world turned its attention to Pennsylvania. With fully 20 electoral college votes on offer, Pennsylvania did what smaller Nevada or Arizona couldn't do on their own. It handed Joe Biden the presidency. Back in episode two, Tony Fratto, a Pennsylvania native and former deputy press secretary to President George W. Bush, showed us what to expect. I'll tell you, Ryan, like here in this area where I am in southwestern Pennsylvania, a lot of coal uh, workers here. If you go talk to people in the coal industry here, which has been hit very, very hard over the past 15 or 20 years, and you ask them whether they think coal is coming back, they will tell you honestly, no, it's not coming back. So they know that when Trump says, you know, I'm going to bring coal back, they know coal's not coming back. What they like is somebody unabashedly telling them, I'm on your side and I want to bring coal back. And with Joe Biden, do they see Biden as being on their side? Yeah, there's a concession that Joe Biden is a, is a nice guy. Now, like you still have people who made the tribal choice to go on Team Trump and they're, they're clinging to it pretty hard. But I think the loosely affected voters and people I see, they say, there's nothing wrong with Joe Biden. You know, they're, they're, they're perfectly happy with Joe Biden. And in a state like Pennsylvania, that can make the difference. In the end, neither candidate flipped that many counties or states. They drove up their numbers mostly where they already did well. And that means President Trump may be leaving office, but Trumpism is not leaving with him. Polarization still defines America. Politico's Michigan-based chief political correspondent, Tim Alberta, called it. The people in uh, you know, a small town in the Midwest are still going to either get their news from Fox or from CNN, right? They're, they're still going to choose whether to buy an American car or a foreign-made car. They're still going to you know, uh, base their uh, consumer de- decisions from you know, grocery shopping to movie rentals to restaurants that they frequent. They're still largely basing those things off of an underlying prejudice or, or, or certainly a, a deeply embedded sense of, of, of cultural preference and cultural affiliation that even though it doesn't feel political, it is. There was a time in which you could pretty cleanly separate the political from the societal. And my own opinion on that is, you know, that that time is is long since past and that really the post 9-11 era in America has been defined by the merging of all of these tribes, cultural, you know, geographic, economic, and certainly political, all into one where those lines have really blurred. America may be polarized, but it's also engaged. More than 75 million people voted for Joe Biden. More than 70 million voted for President Donald Trump. Both of those numbers are records. As polling expert Kristen Soltis-Anderson told us, this was always a referendum on Trump. 
I think it is a lot more about President Trump himself, in part because you find voters who are very fired up to participate, who are not necessarily on the ideological extremes. When we think of polarization, sometimes we can think of it as folks being very far apart on policy issues, being very far apart ideologically, um, and being very dug into camps in that way. Here in this election, you have quite a number of voters who may actually be ideologically moderate, but it's their view on Donald Trump that is fusing them with the more ideologically extreme uh, pieces of their party and is causing this great deal of, of energy uh, and having folks very motivated to vote either for or against Donald Trump, um, but in some ways is also paving... Over- While the pollsters did accurately predict a lot of enthusiasm for this election, they didn't exactly predict the flow of it in several key states. There was no blue wave giving the Democrats total control of Washington. In fact, they lost seats in the House of Representatives, and they didn't win enough of them to take control of the Senate, as polls suggested. Texas stayed red. Biden has been uh, at least at 50% among likely voters in our tracking since early June. And that has really been a consistent, you know, seven to 10 point race in our polling. Biden has a lot more avenues to victory, right? Because he is polling neck and neck with Trump in Arizona. He is polling neck and neck with Trump in North Carolina. And he even has a a slim lead um, in Florida as well. So, I mean, I think all of those states, and that's even before getting to Texas, which is obviously of huge interest, just given shifting demographics. and, And you may have a similar story going on over there in Georgia. This week has left pollsters doing more than a little bit of soul searching. But people in glass podcasting recording studios shouldn't throw stones. Yes, I'll brag that I picked 49 of the 50 states in the presidential race. But it was a pity I got Texas wrong, throwing a full 38 electoral college votes out the window. But overall, let's be grateful that so many got to vote, and that so far the streets have been filled with parties rather than protests or violence. A message from Huawei. Governments may come and go. But Huawei is here to stay. We have been connecting Europe for 20 years, and we will continue to bring European families, businesses, and societies together during good times and bad. Huawei is committed to Europe now and into the future. We will invest in technology that transforms people's lives and Europe's economy for the benefit of all. And now it's time to look past the holiday season and into the political crystal ball of January 2021 with those Georgia Senate races. They're headed to a runoff because the state requires a candidate to receive at least 50% of the vote to win an election outright. In one of the races, David Perdue fell just short with 49.8% of the vote against his Democratic challenger, John Ossoff. In the other race, there were more than 20 candidates, so nobody got more than 32% of the vote. So that's why we are where we are. I am Greg Bluestein. I'm a lifelong Georgian and I'm covering politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution at a crazy time. And I'm Ryan Heath, and I'm a Georgian by family connection now, so we are definitely all peach state for this podcast. Greg, as we're talking, it seems clear that Biden has won Georgia. It would take some kind of extreme development or human error for this lead to be overturned. For our audience, uh, most of whom are out of the U.S., uh, if we could start at the 30,000-foot level... We know Georgia has only voted once for a Democrat since 1976 for president. 
What's been changing in Georgia to turn the state blue, at least for now? Well, a couple of major things. First is that Democrats are running as Democrats in Georgia now. And for a long time, Democrats ran as kind of a moderate, you know, Republican light because they thought that was the only way that they could win in a state like Georgia that hasn't voted for president for Democrats since 92, but hasn't also elected a statewide Democratic official since since 2006. So you've had Democrats more embracing liberal philosophies, liberal ideologies and liberal policies and that's energized the African-American base and energized the base overall. But the second major thing is the suburbs, the suburbs of Atlanta, just like you're seeing everywhere else across the U.S. It's suburban moderates who used to be firmly Republican who are having second thoughts about the GOP, particularly President Trump. And I think that's what's contributed to this vast change in Georgia. And one more note about the suburbs, they've also become more diverse. It's not just this stand-in for for white voters that it used to be seen as. You know, when you say the suburbs, it might have just said white. Well, it's not that way anymore. The suburbs are becoming younger. They're becoming more diverse, especially when you look to a suburb like Gwinnett County, which is now a Democratic stronghold. It is one of the most diverse counties in the eastern seaboard. Yeah, absolutely. And now when we think about what's next in Georgia – uh, you don't get to escape this election. Uh, you've got two Senate seats that remain open, heading to runoff votes on January 5. So it really feels like Georgia will be the center of global political attention throughout the, this holiday season. What does someone outside America need to know about these four Senate candidates, the two on each party side? Yeah. And uh, the first thing I think we folks need to know is that although there's two different races, I'm just looking at them as one. I don't think there'll be a significant drop off between either of the Republicans or either of the Democrats, um, because there's so much attention on these, on these contests. Kelly Leffler, she is the Republican incumbent in one of the races. She was appointed by Governor Kemp to the job just in late December uh, of last year to fill the, the seat of retiring Senator Johnny Isaacson. She's a, a gazillionaire. She's a former financial tech executive whose husband runs the Atlanta-based company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. And they've already spent $30 million plus of their own money to get her this far, to get her past a very contentious special election field. She'll be facing Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is the pastor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s church, Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. So that tells you a lot about that race. He's a first-time candidate. He's running on a liberal platform. He has the backing of the state and national establishment even before this special election. But now, of course, He's got droves of, of support. The other race is equally interesting. You've got Senator David Perdue, who is a former Fortune 500 chief executive who, who won office in 14 on this kind of outsider appeal. And he, he beat all these better known Republican elected officials based on that. Well, he's facing John Ossoff, who really was the first big test of the Democrats' suburban appeal in Georgia. Cause right after Trump, won the state but lost the suburbs. He ran for a special election seat in the U.S. House and narrowly lost it, but kind of showed Democrats that, hey, like they can succeed in the suburbs by coming within a whisker of, of, of flipping that seat. Well, he's come back, emerged from a crowded primary uh, field, a crowded first round of voting, and uh, is now challenging David Perdue, saying that he's corrupt, a member of the status quo, and that, that he'll bring change if he's elected. Yeah, maybe let's tackle that ethics question first, and then we get to the Democratic side. Both of the Republican candidates, they have the advantage of incumbency, 
but they do exist under these ethics clouds. Is that something that is going to drag them down? Or do you think those are allegations that Georgians have brushed off at this point? It's old news, basically. The Democrats are going to seize on those. They're not necessarily pivoting to those arguments yet. But as the, in the closing days of this race, I bet they, they're going to jump on those. Because what's happened is both Senator Perdue and Senator Leffler have both made a series of stock transactions in the run-up to the coronavirus pandemic getting worse, in the run-up to the economic turmoil. And in Senator Leffler's case, she made more transactions that seemed to benefit her more. David Perdue made, made a lot of transactions that also hurt him. So it, it's harder to accuse him of, of benefiting from it. But certainly Democrats will still do that. Both of them say they've been cleared by federal investigators. The Senate ethics panel has both cleared them of any wrongdoing. But Democrats say, hey, look, being criminally charged is a lot different than doing something wrong. And they think that they ethically did something wrong by using insider information to affect their stock transactions. So that, that'll, that'll play into this race. I don't know how pivotal it will be, but it certainly goes into the whole Democratic argument that, that these guys are corrupt somehow. Now, talking about the Democratic challenges, the Democrats have really been putting Stacey Abrams on a pedestal, if not attract to sainthood over the past couple of days for all her efforts to register voters in the state to get them to turn out. As Joe Biden slid past President Donald Trump in Georgia, social media went crazy with mentions of Stacey Abrams. Representative Jayapal tweeting out, whatever happens in Georgia, everyone should get on their knees and thank strong black women like the fearless Stacey Abrams and so many who slog away without appreciation. Abrams, known for her run for Georgia governor back in 2018, has been crucial in pushing back against voter suppression. She's a, um, At the same time, candidates like John Ossoff were running behind Joe Biden. He's not ahead based on that first round in this race. So I'm wondering what you think the Democrats have to do to avoid some kind of MAGA backlash, the Make America Great Again backlash that Trump will now try and rally in all of his contesting of the presidential results. Yeah, that's going to be a, you know, it's a challenge for both parties. It's a challenge for Democrats because in a state like Georgia that has been so reliably Republican, no Democrat has ever won a statewide runoff, like a statewide overtime match in Georgia history. So Republicans have tradition on their side. Usually these uh, runoffs attract a, a smaller electorate, an older electorate, a more conservative electorate. And so that all plays into Republican hands. So Democrats have their work cut out for them. At the same time, there are many Republicans in Georgia who are worried that all of President Trump's talk of a stolen election, so this baseless talk with no, with no evidence or, or, or proof whatsoever, all of this will dissuade voters from turning out to the polls. And is there an argument, well, I suppose it's not an argument, it's only about the data, uh, but at some level, Trump turns out low propensity voters, people who don't normally vote in an election, and it helps when he's on the ballot. And if he's not on the ballot, then the people the Republicans used to rely on might have swapped sides and the people they now rely on might not turn up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but both parties have to make the case that despite Donald Trump not being on the ballot, because remember, a lot of Democrats voted just because they wanted to vote against him. Um, and you, you, you actually saw a drop off from between John Ossoff and Joe Biden of about 100,000 votes. So that in a nutshell shows you some of John Ossoff's challenges, Democrats' challenges at large. So both these parties have to convince voters they need to show, they need to return to the polls in eight weeks. And remember, Georgia voters are already exhausted. We've had $200 million plus spent on ads in the Senate races alone, not to mention all the other contests. And now we're probably going to have 
$500 million more spent in the next two months in Georgia, an obscene amount of money. So uh, that's you've actually got to, a really important voters. point, I think, where yeah. the, the Democrats have sunk a billion dollars into Senate races that they mostly lost. And it makes me wonder whether outside interventions are going to be a problem rather than an asset to both of the campaigns. That's a great point, because two things that have happened that Republicans are just gleeful about, and this these just happened the last couple of days. The first is Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, said uh, in a video right out, in like a, like a moment of unrestrained joy, he had just found out that, that Joe Biden was declared victor, uh, and he was in New York, and he said, we're going to take Georgia and we're going to change the world. Now we take Georgia, and then we change the world. Yeah! And within like hours, that becomes a an attack ad from Republicans saying these guys want to, these outside interests want to change the world, change Georgia. They, they're coming in to try to, you know, subvert the process. And then secondly, Andrew Yang, the former presidential candidate is said, he's not only is he going to support John Ossoff and, and Reverend Warnock, he is moving to Georgia through January to stump and promote for them. Help is on the way. Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang announcing on Twitter that he's moving to Georgia with his wife. Yang says he's so again, like Republicans are just kind of sitting back saying, OK, here, here are these here's all these outside interests trying to radicalize Georgia. And um, well, I guess maybe the, the counterpoint there to finish off on is you'll have all of these 2024 GOP hopefuls, the ones who want to replace Trump coming into the state, the Tom Cottons, the Nikki Haley's. Will Georgians shrug that off or is that something that's going to get any traction? That is a great point because we've had our first coming on Wednesday and that's, that's Senator Marco Rubio's coming Wednesday. But it'll be harder for Republicans to make that case because they'll have their same outsiders coming in. And certainly, look, I think by the end of this, Joe Biden will be back down here. President Trump will be back down here because President-elect Biden's first term relies on this. At least the first two years of his term relies on what happens in Georgia because he won't be able to get nearly as ambitious of an agenda through the Senate if Republicans retain control. We started this pop-up series way back in August, just as the Democratic and Republican conventions were upended by the pandemic. The election continued to break norms all the way until after the voting ended. From the president's tantrums to Joe Biden's basement, from that terrible, awful, horrible first debate to the 100 million who voted before Election Day. I can't tell you what's going to come next, but Politico is going to be there to cover it every step of the way with you. So that's it, folks. Thanks for letting us guide you through this wild ride. Campaign Confidential couldn't have happened without Christina Gonzalez, our producer in Brussels. And thanks to James Randerson and Andrew Gray for their input from Brussels too. And to all of my colleagues from across these United States of America who joined us each episode. You'll be back in the hands of the EU Confidential crew each Thursday. And wherever you get your podcasts, be sure to subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. I'm Ryan Heath in New York saying bye for now.